Little Women podcast bonus episode where we talk about historical and cultural topics that are related in some way to little women. So today I'm so excited to have a wonderful guest with me. It's my friend Sarah Ift from the podcast Media Evil. Hi Sarah. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited you're here because it's a real treat to have someone on the show who actually really knows their stuff when it comes to history, unlike me, more of an amateur history fangirl. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I am a historian a bit earlier than the period we'll be talking about mostly today since uh, my research is the 13th and 14th centuries, but... Hey, maybe my next project will be instead of a modernization of Little Women, I'll move the story even further back in time. Exactly. Set in the Middle Ages. It's about the Hundred Years' War. Oh my gosh. I need to start up a fanfiction.net <laughs> account like pronto. <laughs> anyway, I am so excited to just dive into today's topic since we've been keeping these bonus episodes kind of short and snappy. Today we'll be talking about Louisa May Alcott's father, Bronson Alcott, born Amos Alcox, and he changed his oh. name when he was in the seventh grade. So oh, wow. put two and two together. Maybe he's getting teased for his last name. Right. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about Bronson Alcott and his many, many attempts at creating a progressive school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bronson was born in Connecticut in 1799. As I mentioned, he was born Amos Alcox. And the Alcox family was pretty much a semi-literate one. And Bronson Hmm. did not have a lot of formal education. He just lucked out that his mother happened to be one of the people in the community with the ability to read and write. And she taught him by, like, drawing in charcoal the letters. Oh, wow. Which is also very exciting that it was his mother specifically, since that would have been a period where women were probably less literate than men still. Absolutely. And I wonder if that influenced his thinking later in life, because when he would go on to become a famous public speaker, women were always permitted to be at his lectures, which was often totally unheard of for the time. They be coming to universities and colleges where they wouldn't be allowed to be admitted as students, but they would be yeah. allowed to come to his lectures. That's a very interesting connection that I never made before. So Yeah, no, that's really interesting because, yeah, as you said, a lot of women would not be admitted to most colleges. It was still pretty standard that women would be likely to be taken out of school earlier than men or than boys, I think. I think that's so. true. On a later episode, we'll talk about Louise Mayalcott's mother, who has sort of a reverse experience. She was in a very wealthy family, but being a woman instead of a man, mm-hmm. uh, it was more discouraged for her to actually pursue an education. Right. Bronson got his teaching certificate at the ripe old age of 17. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which is hilarious. I can't even imagine a 17-year-old student teacher in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, And he uh, struggled to find a teaching job, which, wonder why. Understandable. (laughs) Might have something to do with what we're talking about right now. Um, And he instead became a traveling salesman in the South. And he was selling all kinds of things, including a lot of books. And 
this experience would really shape his worldview for the rest of his life in a profound way because sometimes the wealthy people he was selling to would let him stay in the house. Sometimes they wouldn't and he would end up staying with the enslaved people uh, in their quarters. So from an early age, he started to, I think, have these experiences that allowed him to see them as fully human in a way that a lot of people of the time could not because of their prejudices. And it's so fascinating. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I mean, especially coming from the North by that period. I can't remember exactly when it was kind of outlawed in most Northern states, but so most, but most people, at least I think at that point wouldn't have had slaves, uh, but they also would just have, have essentially not known any black people and so that would have been a very different experience that he would have not otherwise have just been able to distance himself I would say is what a lot of northerners had the luxury of doing oh yeah I'm sure uh at that young teenage age that was probably his first experiences even encountering people of another race um and it's very interesting that you would bring up that New England connection because this is a time where abolitionists even in new england are still being tarred and feathered for their beliefs and still persecuted i think sometimes uh we like the general public have a tendency to like think of the civil war and the pre-civil war era as like a 50 50 divide either you were a slave owner or (laughs) an overseer or you were like an abolitionist with a stop on the underground railroad and bronson really (laughs) was that one side of things like they literally Mm -hmm. maintained a stop on the underground railroad but there were a lot of other factions in the middle yeah yeah, and New England and the Connecticut connection in particular is interesting because so I lived in New Haven, Connecticut for six years, which is the hometown of Eli Whitney, who invented the cotton gin. Oh, really? I had totally, I'm sure I learned it at some point because everyone learns about Eli Whitney, but I had not made the Connecticut connection. I honestly hadn't internalized that information really either until I moved to New Haven and uh, there was a Whitney Avenue and real end of town of things, you know, the Whitney such and such. And at some point realized that's who they're all named after. And he's buried there in New Haven. I would have been like, wow, these people love Whitney Houston. Amazing. We stand. (laughs) Uh, Well, going from that back to Bronson Alcott, I'm so good at these segues. Going from that back to Bronson Alcott, uh, this will probably not come as a surprise when we talk about his later life, but he was not good at being a salesman. His dad had to bail Mm -hmm. him out of a significant amount of debt during what was basically his first trip, and that was the end of his career in sales. Yay! (laughs) It was fun while it lasted, but it was not fun. Um, So he came back to Connecticut to uh work in cheshire is it cheshire or cheshire i'm not quite sure I think it's cheshire like, i've not actually been i've not actually been there but i'm pretty sure it's cheshire i murder everything with my midwest accent and i think <laughs> our version of little women is the most midwestern ever so i had to check um so he came uh, to cheshire connecticut and was working at the cheshire school and he immediately began 
implementing a ton of changes that most people found really radical. He added comfort to the classroom. The, he added backs mm. to the benches so students could <laughs> sit more comfortably. Um, he added windows. He paid for renovations that added more natural light oh, wow. to the classroom. And he added heat so that in the winter months, students were no longer oh. shivering and miserable. Yeah. Um, which were all really newfangled ideas, which now obviously beggars belief, but that's how it was. Right. Yeah. Although you still every now and then hear from some teachers that, you know, maybe they should be a little less comfortable in the classroom so they don't fall asleep. So uh. you have that. My I remember my <laughs> freshman um uh, what was that freshman history teacher would yet insist on keeping the windows of the classroom open all year round to like keep us cold and alert but I would always get distracted (laughs) by how cold I was so I don't know how well that worked I think it kind of backfired um I'm all for my students having at least a moderate comfort yeah that's true and of course on the opposite side of things you'll always see those horror stories too where there are schools where students in this day and age don't have those adequate comforts that they need to learn and districts are like well deal with it which is crazy even back in the early 1800s Bronson Elcott could have told them that this was vital to the students learning So he added a lot of other improvements. Um, He paid for supplies so that each student could have their own of things like slates. He Mm. decorated the classroom with pictures and busts of famous thinkers and other visual aids to kind of inspire the Mm. students as they learned. Again, this was not something that was usually done. Now it's funny because it's so standard and like it's such a part of our school system from the earliest, earliest stages. But this was novel. (laughs) Yeah, although again, I think something that still is an issue in some uh, lower income public school districts that they don't necessarily have those sorts of things. Oh, yeah. And again, something that our educational system should probably be prioritizing. Certainly. And I don't want to make it seem like, oh, and now these are things we all have. Ha ha. Can you believe they didn't have them? (laughs) But this is a situation where wealthy parents would be sending their kids to Bronson School and they would see Mm -hmm. these things and be like, we don't want these things. So it kind of helps to look at it from that perspective. I don't want to seem flippant about privilege. It's it's interesting to imagine a time when these were seen as not just like, oh, that's frivolous, that's on top of what they need. It was seen as actively detrimental. Right, that if they were too comfortable, then they would actually learn less, which there's not much research behind that. No, I don't think so. Um, So he de-emphasized rote learning, just like memorizing Mm -hmm. things by repeating them over and over. He asked his students questions that related to their personal experiences. And when they wrote things, instead of just copying down famous poems or famous passages of literature, or let's face it, famous Bible verses, um, (laughs) he would ask them to write about their personal experiences. And he was a very religious man he was never actually ordained a pastor but he would like give but basically were religious sermons later in his life so yeah you know in many ways he was he would incorporate religion into his teaching but in a way that like he would ask his students what they thought about different bible stories 
and use it mm-hmm. as a jumping off point for philosophical conversations. It would not yeah. be about like just brutally instilling the values of the Bible that as he interpreted it into them. Yeah. So he was, yeah, a very, very interesting person. And I love all these ideas. And of course, I cannot emphasize enough how unpopular they were. The school almost immediately collapsed. Oh, no. Almost immediately. uh, Students were yanked out of it and enrolled in a different school like it just in more traditional schools yeah he didn't have enough students Hmm. to keep going on but he did impress one very important person with the cheshire school abigail may aka abba aka his future wife because she was an aspiring teacher and again Mm -hmm. i will talk more about her because i want to talk about her in her own right instead of just shoving her into bronson's episode she's an amazing person but um she was really impressed like immediately like in a love at first sight way with what bronson was doing oh wow i think they were total kindred spirits so that's really lovely And you can also really imagine that seeing that kind of dynamic classroom for the first time, which is very much, I will say, what as somebody who, you know, learned how to be an educator over the last decade, it's very much the kind of teaching that we're now encouraged to really do is that kind of teaching that engages the students in the classroom, uh, you know, at the college level as well as other levels, I'm sure as well. Totally. That, and I I'm think sure seeing that for the first time must have been amazing. I think he would have actually in some ways been happier as like a university lecturer yeah, uh, I think he like in some ways found a little bit of success with that later in his life. Mm-hmm. I think he just was. Yeah, when you throw parents into the mix with him, yeah. it's never going to be a good combination, including him being a parent, as we will get uh-huh. to. <laughs> uh, so, like I said, the school collapsed very quickly. And unfortunately, this was the beginning of a pattern. There were many attempts, too Mm -hmm. many for me to get into in this bonus episode, (laughs) at creating this progressive elementary, you know, now what would be like an elementary and middle grade school. Um, And just every single time, there would be like a lot of enthusiasm at first because he could be very charismatic and he could be a very articulate speaker. And then mm-hmm. once students were actually enrolled and like coming home with stories about what they were doing yeah. that day, things just fell apart like with a shocking quickness. Parents were suddenly horrified. This is not what I was signing up for. Absolutely. I think now he would be like the director of a Waldorf school somewhere probably. Right. Yeah, or yeah, Montessori. I grew up going to a Montessori school. I think he might have liked one of those. Oh, I've always been so jealous of Montessori's. I always had like such a romantic yeah. idea of them as a kid. <laughs> um, so another interesting thing about Bronson Alcott that I should have talked about when I was talking about all the changes he made, he was very against corporal punishment, which again, extremely mm-hmm. unusual belief for the time. Yeah. And to the point that... Uh, So during this era, a lot of uh, one of the ways kids would be punished would be to hold out their hand, palm side up, and they'd be struck on the palm very hard with a ruler. And this was, you know, it was made of wood and metal and it was extremely painful. 
Um, and of course, this happens in Little Women when right. Amy is caught with the pickled limes. Mr. Davis, the teacher, strikes her palm and leaves a red mark on it. Um, yeah. Bronson was so against corporal punishment of children that he would offer his own hands to the children to strike because oh, wow. he said if a child makes a mistake, it's the teacher's fault. Which is a very, again, a very modern idea in a lot of ways that that's something I think that's becoming more common that people will say, if, for example, if at least if all of your students are failing a test, that's not because your students are bad. That's because you have taught the material badly. And there's definitely something to that. I think we both agree that Bronson probably took it to, with this example, oh, yes. um, to extreme level. But it is a very oh, yeah. kind of... um striking if you'll forgive the pun Uh (laughs) image and idea uh so one of his future attempts at making a school actually did kind of stick to his credit and that was the temple school in boston which i think made it about a year and a half okay um but of course because it was doing so well after a while bronson being Bronson, and also, I think, really having, like, these truly held beliefs. I think he was someone who, someone who kind of needed attention, but I think uh-huh. he really did believe these things that he preached, on at least on some level. Um, yeah. He upped the ante significantly. At the Temple School, he started teaching basically sex ed, which oh, wow. was incredibly unheard of for the time. I mean, this is pre-Civil yep. War. Uh, and again, he was still a very religious man. So he's mm-hmm. teaching the sex ed very much in, condu- in conjunction with a very liberal form of Christianity, which, again, mm. I'm very for this. And I think a lot of, like, modern Sunday schools try to be like this. But what he would do yeah. is he would ask the kids questions you know, like I mentioned, questions about the Bible. Um, He would get their opinions. And then he even went so far as to, like, publish pamphlets of their thoughts and opinions on different Bible stories and religious concepts. Like, he was very interested in seeing Christianity through a child's eyes. That's kind of fantastic. I kind of love that idea of really seeing the different kinds of perspectives that people have. I mean, having taught the Bible, I've always find it really interesting to see the very, the kind of vast variety of perspectives that people come to who don't have a certain familiarity with the text. And it's such a wholesome idea now. Like, I feel like there's a whole market uh, of religious books that's like, what kids have to say about angels. But at the time, (laughs) this was considered to be like a dirty book basically right. it was obscene wow. so uh at this point parents were pulling their children out of the school and there were also protests of the school mm-hmm. and again he did truly hold abolitionist beliefs but the timing was kind of meant to be to infuriate the people who were already protesting him He admitted Uh an African-American student named Susan Robinson to his school. At a time when nobody would have been doing that. I mean, we are a long way off from integrating uh, the American school system. So this was considered incredibly shocking. I think it's very brave and lovely. I wish he had done it at a time when it wasn't meant to, like, 
be a provocation of people who were already against him because it makes me feel like he was right. using this girl a little bit. But the idea yeah, and itself, kind of sad for her and her family. In yeah, that way, the but. idea itself is like a, the idea of into integrating the school is obviously a good one in the yeah, most general <laughs> sense there. Um, so after the temple school fell apart, that was pretty much the end of Brunson's career <laughs> as an educator, at least in the formal sense. He was incredibly mm-hmm. admired by all the great transcendentalist thinkers of the day, like Horace Mann, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Emerson, um, and he really grew to have a reputation as, like, a great religious thinker. He was also mm. often made fun of for his long, rambling writings. But, I mean, <laughs> who among us hasn't been made fun of for that from time to time? My dissertation was definitely far too long. <laughs> I definitely got some dirty looks for my classmates for... In junior high, we had to do a presentation on a topic that was, like, one class period long. And I was like, we're going to need to come back tomorrow because I have <laughs> more to tell you about this. I definitely also did uh, did not quite finish the material I was supposed to get through in my last class. And we'll have to continue with that material after Thanksgiving. <laughs> hey, you know what? Sometimes a topic is just so interesting and there's so much yeah. to say. But I am trying to keep these bonus episodes short, so I will press yes. on. Um, so just for anyone who's not familiar, especially because we have some younger listeners to these episodes who are my Mm -hmm. extra favorites, you guys know you are, um, (laughs) transcendentalism is basically, to boil it down to the simplest form I can, the belief that any human being can attain perfection because any human being has, uh, like God or the Holy Spirit or just spirit, whatever you want to think of as a higher power, every human being has that spark inside of them. And in Mm -hmm. transcendentalism, um, it's also the belief that all humans are connected because of that spirit and also connected to everything in nature. You know, it's the whole idea of Walt Whitman and leaves of grass. The leaves on the tree are the same as the grass growing out of the ground because it's all connected. So... I think even if you don't know a lot about transcendentalism, you can probably get a good sense of how Bronson Alcott fits into those ideas pretty well based on what we know about his school and what we talked about in an earlier bonus episode about his attempt at a utopian commune. Right. Emphasis on attempt. (laughs) So how exactly did Bronson implement these high-minded beliefs of his at home? You might be asking. (laughs) Well, he didn't. (laughs) Is the short and sad answer. Because it seems like from day one, and they have the same birthday. If I didn't already mention that, Louisa was Mm -hmm. born on his 33rd birthday to the day. Um, It seems like from day one, Bronson and Louisa were just butting heads. And it was like Mm. his life goal to just you know, beat that spirit out of her. And I do mean beat in the literal sense because this guy who was so against corporal punishment did spank his daughters, but especially Louisa, Mm -hmm. who had the misfortune of being sandwiched between just the very naturally easygoing oldest daughter, Anna, 
and the very quiet and often sick Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Um, and from, uh, yeah, just from an early age, like when she was a baby, Bronson would write letters about how she was unusually vivacious, like saying, like, this baby's like it's a bad crazy, thing. yeah. <laughs> and he would go on when she got older to just write, like, long letters about how stubborn she was and how she would resist oh. any attempt to make her do anything. So, yeah, he spanked her. He took away her dinner. He basically just... His the core of his educational beliefs was that the child, uh, the years of your childhood should be about enjoying life, and developing your abilities to like critically observe the world around you. But he truly did not practice that at home, especially with his second daughter. Um, and I have to wonder if it was because they were just so alike that he couldn't stand it. Yeah. And I also will say I do have to wonder if it would have been quite the same dynamic if she had been a son rather than a daughter. That, of course, you know, even I, with the perhaps holding theoretical ideas, the reality might be very different. I completely agree with you because by all accounts, Fruitlands, the commune that they had was mm-hmm. not like gender equal. And the women were right. working very, very, very hard. Well, in a lot of cases, the men were, you know, exchanging the more high-minded philosophical ideas because they had the opportunities to do so. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think if she were a boy, she would have been seen as more of his, like, apprentice in philosophy or in even being a clergyman. Um, But because she was a daughter, that just wasn't an option. He couldn't believe that she could be his successor. I also think he truly suffered from an undiagnosed mental illness. Obviously, Mm -hmm. from this vantage point in history, we can never know for sure one way or another. But we do know that he fell into like a comatose depression after Fruitlands failed. And he Mm -hmm. would go through these periods in his life where he would be like bedridden with depression there's no other way to put it it was more of a mental illness than a physical malady so i don't think it's a huge stretch to say that that probably also affected his treatment of his children yeah absolutely not that that excuses anything but it does you know help give us a little bit of context yeah help explains i really wish he had allowed uh his educational beliefs to flourish at home though because yeah um his wife definitely was on that path i think in a very real way so i think Mm -hmm. they could have been a very cohesive family unit but yeah oh well hindsight's 2020 um just wrapping things up in his later years he got really active in activism and civic disobedience He voted for the first time ever in a presidential election to vote for Abraham Lincoln. Oh, that's a nice first election. Yeah, and he, like, wrote about it. He was, like, super proud and happy, which I thought was really lovely. I was really touched when I was reading that letter. Uh, He was very against the Mexican-American War, not just because of the loss of American life, but specifically because he saw it as America's attempt to plunder Mexico's riches and resources. He wasn't wrong. And he was completely right. But again, (laughs) for the time period, 
uh, he was not just woke, but like extremely woke because yeah. most people would have just had that patriotic, like, all right, we're going to support our troops. Uh, so one of the most interesting anecdotes from his life, if not the most interesting, with a group of others, he stormed a courthouse during the trial of a fugitive slave who had escaped from enslavement and then been caught and was being put on trial for right. the crime of escaping. And, like, the courthouse guards got out their guns and were firing shots. And all the other oh, people wow. who stormed the courthouse with Bronson ran away. And Bronson was the only one to stand his ground to the last. Oh, wow. Wow. Good for him. And he was like an older guy at this point because uh, oh. in Little Women, you know, Captain March is a chaplain and he goes to the Civil War to help out. But yeah. Louisa was actually a young woman by the time the Civil War happened. She became a nurse. Bronson was not involved in the Civil War effort in any tangible way like that. Okay. Obviously, he and his wife were running a stop on the Underground Railroad. Right, so he was helping right. in so a pretty different important. huge way. But, yes. um, yeah, I thought that was, like, really, really interesting uh, that she sort of transposed her own war experience onto the father figure in the story. But also yeah. as, like, the dad who gave me so much grief, let's just send him away out of the story for <laughs> basically the entirety of the book, more or less. But also, of course, sanitizing him by doing that, exactly. which is interesting. Uh, and what did Bronson think of Louisa May Alcott's writing? Well, we'll get into the publication of Little Women later on, but when her first book, Hospital Sketches, which were stories based on her experiences as a Civil War nurse came out, he said it was not representative of her as a writer or a woman and basically <sighs> tore it to shreds. Oh, no. So, yeah, one of those... Sadly, too many men who seem very woke but have some real gender-related issues. Absolutely, which I think is so <laughs> interesting because I think, especially the way we interpret the characters in the modern sense, you do yeah. see those ideas coming through in the characters of Lori and Brooke. Yeah. Uh, not in my modern version, at least not <laughs> yet, because I've consciously made an effort to explore at least one of them being a true male ally i won't say mm -hmm. which one hopefully if you're listening you know what i'm talking about <laughs> um but yeah he definitely fits that archetype that is not at all uncommon mm -hmm. i do think it's interesting you know he wasn't really implementing these educational ideas in the same way at home but he produced two daughters not that he should get credit for their accomplishments, but one of whom was an incredibly successful author and the yeah. other of whom was a very talented and professionally successful painter because oh. uh, May, the youngest sister who inspired Amy um, until her unfortunate passing, was a... Uh, not just a, a good painter, but a commercially successful one. And she oh, did all wow. the first illustrations for the first version of Little Women. Oh, wow. Yes. That's very cool. So it's like he couldn't help it, even though he was being a strict and sometimes very <laughs> cruel father at home. His ideals, perhaps in some way, did trickle down uh, because I do think that his children, like, 
in some ways perhaps were given opportunities to artistically flourish that their peers were not. Yeah, which, yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic. It's so hard to reconcile, isn't it? Yeah, that hmm, that it's almost, um, yeah, that they managed to become that uh, both, in some ways, both because and despite of him and the way he treated them. Yeah, I think there are so many interesting historical figures, including Elizabeth I, who we just talked about together yes. on Media Evil, who became who they were both because of and in spite of their family upbringing. Yes, absolutely. And that actually was kind of a smooth segue on my part because... That's all we have to say about Bronson for today. But if you want to hear more of me and Sarah talking about history, and of course you do, you should yes. check out her podcast, Media Evil. Our pod, uh, our podcast episode together about Elizabeth I will be out at a later date, soonish. But in the meantime, she's covered lots of other interesting topics. Sarah, do you care to like list off a few that people might be interested in listening to? Yeah, so I cover based on different movies. So the very first episode is about Braveheart, which is a lot of fun. Not kid-friendly, but a lot of fun for our grown-up listeners. And I know we have a mix of both. (laughs) Yeah, so I will say in general, the podcast is probably a little better for the slightly older listeners um, based on the kind of various media that we cover and things like that. But yes, I've covered uh, the TV show Merlin. I've covered Braveheart. I've covered Monty Python, The Holy Grail. Oh, that's a fun one. Yeah. So, yeah, and and basically any kind of medieval or medieval-inspired fantasy is fair game, potentially, for the podcast. I love it. It's such a fun idea for a podcast, and you are definitely you. the person to execute it fully because you know your stuff. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. This is really fascinating to learn more about. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like I'm giving you... A really long IMDb movie trivia before you go see the new Little Women. (laughs) Think of it that way. Yes, I'm very excited. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.